Hello there everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. My name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. If you want to drop us a line away from our episodes or have a chat over social media. Our title music is provided by my good friend Edward Thomas. You can find a link to all of his work in the show notes if you wish. Now, Lizzie and I may both have been shot by arrows through the heart but we're still going to have a long conversation and make sure that we go out with our signature catchphrase anyway. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we are going to be discussing Season 4, Episode 9 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Watchers on the Wall. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by Neil Marshall, who's making his first appearance back in the director's chair since Blackwater, season two, episode nine, so trusted battle guy for Game of Thrones at this stage. Mm. It was first broadcast on the 8th of June, 2014, to an audience of 6.95 million people. Uh, Lizzie, I think some people have heard your general thoughts if they listen to our bonus episode. Go and yeah, check that out if yeah. you like. Or you could just stay with this episode and you can hear our general thoughts again. So, Lizzie, that was uh, that episode that we recorded, that short episode that we recorded, was after your first viewing, but then you went and watched it yeah. again. Has your opinion changed much, for better or for worse? It's sort of visually and orally very impressive but it doesn't have the sort of character arcs that Blackwater has that you can hook into and um, I think I might have mentioned this in the brief episode we did I don't want to keep going on about Blackwater because it's it's comparing apples and oranges it's a different it's a different episode it's a, it, it's a different purpose it's trying to achieve but yeah I did find it hard to write notes about this one um, I mentioned well, sorry to go back to Blackwater again, but I did mention it in the um, in the immediate reaction how I hoped for another single location episode. But it's it is easy to forget how much of a focus that I had on character. It had these huge shifts that shaped how you know what characters would become into what they are now. You know, Cersei's outright cruelty to Sansa and Sandor quitting in the in the middle of the battle and. Eventually, Tyrion stepping up only to be attacked by Samandon. Yeah, yeah. But this this feels more like an episode about survival. It's more of a focus on the measures the Night's Watch takes to survive and how those in Castle Black respond differently to that immediate threat. But yeah, um, I think it does rely a little bit too heavily on some of the visual set pieces and doesn't give the characters enough space to grow aside from a select few and there's also a clunky moment or two which I think could have either been moved or rewritten entirely but yeah um long story short I think it's a good episode but didn't hold up on a second watch 
Yeah, I think comparing it to Blackwater is totally fair enough because it has the same director. It's the only other episode so far we have that is in a single location and just focuses on a big battle. So, yeah, I think it's totally fair enough to compare it to that. Um, I think, to be honest, with the full story in retrospect, I generally love this episode, I think. I think it's nearly, in my opinion, I think it's nearly fantastic, but it's probably just great if I was being more objective about it and I wasn't so emotionally and personally involved in Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones generally. Um, I think the, the decision to give this a full episode is wise because it's kind of like a semi-conclusion to the battle, I guess, this kind of Cold War that's turned into a real war with occasional flashpoints uh, between the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. Um, it's kind of like, an, an, at least in an emotional sense, it feels like a semi-conclusion to that storyline, and I think that giving it the full episode is completely fair enough. Um, yeah. And as you say, I think that this is definitely the... the I think at, at this point, this was the most expensive episode that the show had done. And I think you can really tell. I think that mm, there are moments in this episode where there are sudden changes in how the show wants to go that extra level, not just for itself, but for television. I think it wants to start... Because with Blackwater, I don't think it was ever the intention of that episode to try and push back what was possible on television. But I do think that this is the start of the show going big and maybe going big at the expense of very, very tightly character wound set pieces where you know Blackwater is an incredibly high watermark for the series and for 21st century TV in my view and I think that comparing it to that this is always going to come off worse because the character stuff isn't quite as strong I think that there's not much as you say there's not much in terms of development it's not you know how like at the start of Blackwater Sansa, Cersei, Tyrion and the Hound all kind of enter that episode as particular types of people and then they finish it a different type of person don't think this is as focused with that and it maybe feels like less of a journey this was a lot harder to track in terms of the way that the episode emotionally develops at least because i think there are so many stories loaded into this episode that i think it pays good lip service to basically all of them but doesn't quite get into the nitty-gritty and the nuance in the same way. But I think that's more than made up for for how high the tension is in this episode. And I think that in in terms of, like I say, the size and the spectacle, I think is a really... it's. I think it's more than enough to consider this a particularly strong battle for the series. It's not my favourite battle or my favourite battle episode by any means. And I mm. think that also... I understand the decision to give the full episode treatment to this, but I can, and like, you know, in full retrospect to the story, it's not something I care about, but I completely sympathize with people who maybe after last week wanted to tune in and see something involving Tyrion this week and they don't get it. So, Mm. you know, I kind of get the frustration with that. And I think, you know, this was obviously airing around um, the part of the season where you sort of expect one episode to run into the next, but it, it doesn't quite, 
do that in this little run of three episodes, eight, nine, and ten. They don't really run into each other as such. Uh, like, you know, you could skip episode nine, really. If you just wanted to find out about Tyrion, you could skip episode nine and ju- yeah. jump straight to ten. So that's maybe a bit of a fault in itself because the Castle Black stuff is so divorced from mm. the rest of Westeros that it, I think it is only going to end up being... Um, it, it's going to feel too separate, maybe. Um, but I still think it's a great episode that's nearly fantastic, and I do always look forward to watching this on rewatches. Um, corny moments aside, but we'll we'll get to those. I think. Oh yeah, we will. Love is the death of duty. I told that to your friend John Snow once. He didn't listen, and neither did you which is why you've abandoned your watch atop the wall to come here and read about the terrible things that may have happened to the girl you love. I don't love her. Yes, you do. No. Yes, you do. So um, the first thing we're going to talk about is the pre-battle, the pre-battle discussions that people have. So... As they keep watch at night, Sam and John discuss John's relationship with Egret, and Sam continues to lament the fact that he left Gilly in Molestown because he still believes that she's dead. John tells Sam to take the night off, so Sam heads to the library where he finds Maester Eamon. Uh, a short while afterwards, though, Gilly returns to Castle Black and she's alive, and she has little Sam with her, and the trio reunite. Near Castle Black, the group of wildlings that includes Egret and Tormund wait for a signal to attack Castle Black, with Egret declaring to the others that she is going to be the one to kill Jon Snow. And then they receive Mansi's signal, which is the biggest fire the North has ever seen, as he once promised us in the Season 3 episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, been On a long time coming. Trailer. Yeah. yeah, it's a Season 3 trailer, and I think Season 3 episode 2, so it's a bloody long way... <laughs> uh, that we've come since then. Um, I love the fact that before the battle, the show... I, I just I do love that before the prospect of imminent death, as Maester Eamon says, um, yeah. they take a really good st- extended period to talk about love. I think every conversation before the battle is about love or sex in some way. Mm. And it either leads... It either starts there or it gets led there by somebody making a comment or trying to defend themselves or something. Um, just random uh, question, really, that I've just come up with. Um, which of the pre-battle conversations is your favourite, do you think? Um, well, oh, I don't know. It's really hard to choose. I, I do like them both. And I've got in my notes here that Sam is definitely one of the highlights of this week's episode. And yeah. I think... Um, you know, later in the episode, he does seem to surprise himself with how assertive he can be. But at the start of the episode, you get the impression that he's accepted that that prospect of imminent death that you mentioned. And it's you know, there's talks with John and Mace Raymond. It takes on a more kind of wistful tone than a defiant one. It's like what could have been for Sam. Yeah, I think so. And I I mean, my favourite personally is the one with Sam and Maester Raymond because I think that as talented as I think Kit Harrington is, Peter Vaughan mm. is just, you know, he brings an energy and an atmosphere to scenes that's just so Oh yeah, totally. welcoming and even in the face of, as we've talked about already, imminent death potentially, 
he does make it seem very relaxing and i think he uh, maester Raymond is a character definitely you know he plays the the wise old um i, I guess he's kind of like a counselor for sam in a way um but there are some yeah, really yeah. beautiful moments in that conversation uh, mainly when Maester Aemon is allowed to really, really talk, when he's talking about how the girl that he's imagining is just as real as Sam in front of his face. And it does remind me of um, a Deer Hunter lyric from their song Agrophobia, um, where the lyric goes, And after some time, I know I would go blind, but seeing only binds vision to the eye. And I... Um, I just still think about that lyric every now and again. It's great. Um, yeah, yeah. But I know, I, I do. I think Maester Raymond has this way of making scenes feel very beautiful and very tender. And I think that just before a battle and when love is on Sam's mind and, you know, at this point he's not 100% certain about Gilly's fate and her whereabouts. And it's just a wonderful way for him to be reassured. And Maester Raymond reminds him that love is the death of duty, which is something that he reminds, as he said, to John in season one. And I think that when i think that's what this episode really tries to do is to and i think it to be honest i'm saying tries like it doesn't succeed i think it does mostly succeed there um where if there may be a lack of character stuff on an individual level but the general theme throughout this episode about love and duty if you take sam and john as the kind of protagonists of this episode where and john especially where he has to, you know, it's an egret too, I guess, where it, they have to kind of either choose each other or choose... It's, it's a similar dilemma to the end of season three where John either had to choose for himself and choose for the Night's Watch or choose for himself and choose egret. And it's a similar situation in this. And in the end, in this episode, it's Ollie that actually takes care of this question. Um, yeah, Ollie, yeah, Obviously, true. Ollie doesn't have much of a stake in John and, John and Egret's relationship. He has no idea about mm. it. Um, he only knows that Egret killed his dad about six or seven episodes ago, so don't blame him yep. for that at all. We'll talk about that a bit more <laughs> when we actually get there. Um, although I do like that after ages of not really seeing them, the Wildlings have suddenly become central to the focus again, where we saw them last week uh, outside Molestown, and then they attacked Molestown. And then this week, we see them having their own conversations about love and sex, which shows that regardless of what side... I mean, I think that's something that the show does really well, where it, it, it there's no real side... I mean, we're kind of rooting for Castle Black, I guess, but I think it gives good balance to have a good conversation with Egret and uh, with Tormund as well. I guess the people we're not supposed to like in this episode are the Fen, because they come across as quite obnoxious in this chat yeah where they're kind yeah. of bullying egret uh but fair play to her for kind of you know standing up even though she's two or three inches smaller than um, and uh probably more besides uh, probably half a foot smaller than the uh fen that she squares up against <laughs> but um yeah. yeah i think you know it's uh it's good to get both sides you know before before a, a conflict like this because it, it does we'll talk about it a little bit more when the battle starts but i think that there is an element of this which is like um oh my god it's torment against seralisa oh my god egret against pip who do i who do i not want to die in this scenario and it, it does uh, it does it does force you to think about those kinds of things yeah i hadn't hadn't actually made a note of that but you're right it does sort of point into perspective that these are both people you've kind of not cheered for in a sense but you've related to in the past and now it's like only one of them can survive and where do you 
where do you lay your allegiances? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is a, a totally, totally right way of looking at it. Um, and this bit of the episode, it ends on uh, a sudden lurch, I guess. There's a very quick change of atmosphere where the horns start blaring. Uh, there's the mm-hmm. warg with the fen who's like, it's time. Uh, I sent my owl to the top of the wall. It's time. And then you get the the red glow of the uh, coming over the wall uh, where the, you know, obviously the wildlings like Egret and that are on our side of uh, Castle Black. They're, they're, in, they're in the north. Mm. And they look, you can see over the wall, there's like light pollution from the, uh, from the flames in, in the trees. And it is a super music cue when uh, John oh, yeah. walks to the top of the wall and then there's that, suddenly there's that really intrusive brass section um, and there's a couple of moments like that, but it is, it's a great moment and it's like, right, battle started. Um, so yeah, we finally, you know, we were promised a long time ago about the biggest fire the North has ever seen. And even though Mance Raider isn't physically present in this episode, he is, uh, he's there in spirit, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you have any comments about that particular music cue or the, the fire, the fire, the biggest fire the North has ever seen. Well, you mentioned about the music cue in particular. When we were actually watching the episode together, you you said to me that they haven't really done anything like this in the show before. It's nope. kind of... it's I'd say mm, this might be controversial, but it's very Hollywood. It's like something you'd get in, I don't know, a Michael Bay film. It's more about tone than melody, and it is very intrusive, but I, I don't mind it because um, it, it... I mean... I guess I'm kind of used to how the show applies music in the future. Um, And it does go more, not, I don't know if Hollywood is really the right term, but the music takes more prominence. I think it's just higher in the mix in later seasons. And I think that this is a good, in terms of the soundtrack, this is a good halfway point because they start using, I mean, they've always used music as a storytelling device because Ramin Mm. Javadi tells wonderful stories with his music. And that's why, you know, all the characters and families have got their own motifs and you always recognize them. Well, I always recognize them. But I think this is where the music starts to influence the story on a micro level rather than Mm. a macro level. And this is the first real jump where it kind of jumps from subtext to text, you know? It makes a big yeah, jump, yeah. and I think that it's a great moment, and it's a good halfway point for the soundtrack. But I do, I love the um, the. You know what I'm, <laughs> you know what I mean about Hollywood, though, right? Oh, you gotcha. Know that, I mean, granted, this might have been a few years before every single trailer had that that sound. That you know, <laughs> this is supposed to be threatening default sound that it's become so, um, you know omnipresent that it doesn't have any meaning anymore and you just sort of it's like you know it's like Muzak. Yeah I don't want to um, blame isn't the right word but I think that a lot of people have taken the wrong cues from Hans Zimmer and his Mm, work in the late 2000s and early 2010s I think that a lot of people have taken the wrong cues from it. Uh, In my opinion uh, Rami Javadi has taken the right cues in this particular instance. I don't mind a bit of an intrusive warning about a battle that is to come. I think that now that they're not, I mean, it's really funny if you go back to season one and listen to the theme tune now, and it's like you've like all half half of it's done on MIDI, and now he's actually got like yeah, the yeah. money for a full orchestra. Uh, and these days he goes around. <laughs> well, not these days because there aren't there is no touring. But before the pandemic, he mm. was touring, doing like live shows of the music. Uh, he signed on to do the music for House of the Dragon, 
as well. So it, the show will have a, a similar feel in that regard. But I do, I think it's a great moment. One of my favourite musical cues in the show and it is the warning that the battle has begun. Brothers! A hundred generations have defended this castle. She's never fallen before. She will not fall tonight. Those are things on our walls. They eat the flesh of the men they kill. Do you want to fill the belly of a thin tonight? No! Tonight we fight. And when the sun rises, I promise you, Castle Black will stand. Yeah! The Night's Watch will stand. Yeah! With me now. Now with me. Two horns signal the attack of wildlings from both sides of the castle as the Night's Watch defend and assault from the rear and from atop the wall. Janos Slint is left in charge of the wall while Sir Alice Thorn defends the castle below. Uh, but Janos Slint proves to be cowardly and useless and John assumes command of the wall instead and leads the defence from up the top there. Uh, Janos Slint goes to hide in a pantry where Gilly and Little Sam had already been left by Sam and are already taking shelter. Um, two giants and a mammoth then attempt to breach the castle's tunnel. John sends six brothers, including Gren, to hold the tunnel and stop the giant from getting through. Meanwhile, Sir Alisa and Tormund square off in a fight, leaving Sir Alisa injured. So that's that. That's the general overview of the plot in that bit of the the uh, the battle. There, um, I think this is a really good start to uh, the battle, and it, it happens so early on that I think I can mention it first. One of my all-time favourite monologues and speeches in this show for a proper rush of blood mm. is Sir Alice's one that ends with um, with me now, now with me. Uh, it's just fantastic. I look forward to it every single time. I think this episode really forces you to reconsider the kind of person that Sir Alice is because you get his great conversation atop the wall with John um where he says, you know, being in command means getting second guessed by every little twat with a mouth. And now you get this one where it's like, this guy, you know, at least he has a code. And the code is, I'm going to do oh, my yeah, job. Yeah. And he does his job superbly, I think, uh, this evening. But I think, you know, brothers, um, you know, a thousand generations have defended this castle. Uh, she, <laughs> she has not fallen before. She will not fall tonight. And then the decision they make to cut from with me now and then they cut to some wildlings jumping over a fence and breaking the the wood as if there's going to be mm. a coming clash in about five seconds and then it's now with me and owen teal who plays sir alisa um just yeah brilliant moment and a brilliant performance i don't know if you feel the same way about that speech as i do <laughs> yeah i mean i almost wanted to say that sir alisa surprised me in this but it shouldn't come as a surprise because it makes sense that he would be passionate about defending Castle Black, given that he's pretty much been in charge since the death of Joe Mormon. Yeah. And yeah, you get that sense with him that he's been through this before and he's faced this kind of threat. It it didn't kill him then, so why should it kill him now? Yes. So he's he's trying to imbue that sense in I guess a night's watch which is maybe a little bit pessimistic, particularly at the beginning, you know, that chat between John and Sam, it does feel a little bit resigned to their fate. But yeah, I I loved Sir Alistair in this episode. 
Yeah, I think that thing about them being pessimistic because they are outnumbered a thousand to one is completely fair enough a position to hold. But then Sir Alistair sees this and realizes this, and there's a there is a it's kind of like with um, Tyrion towards the end of Blackwater where he kind of looks round and you know the, the, this show is good at rousing speeches actually because Tyrion delivers his own. It's true. The, uh, the, the, the there's a brave men at our door. Let's go kill them. And this this feels like another one on that level where there's a bunch of kind of people all stood around, not quite sure if they're going to make it through the night, and then Sir Alistair ensures that at least half of them do, in the same way that Tyrion ensures that half of the uh, half of the guys make it through, make it through Blackwater. I think this bit of the um, of the battle is where I really get the sense that there are so many storylines colliding, because yeah. like you get like I'm saying you get. Tormund and Egret climbing the wall at the front of the mm-hmm. at the at the front of the castle. I shouldn't really call it climbing the wall because of the big wall at the back of the castle. So we'll call it the castle wall. Um, yeah, yeah. Where you get Tormund and Egret rushing towards Sam and Pip, and like Pip is firing arrows at Tormund and Egret and trying to drop rocks on their heads, and Pip is like, "Oh my god, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do." And then you sort of like you don't want either side to really perish in this particular situation um and it's sort of like when egret's running towards pip and sam and you're like well it's just some way that they can make it out of this alive um like together but i guess like sam um Ma- sam and pip do manage to make it out for a little while they do manage to find a way around it which is that sam and pip simply leave the battlements and go down a level <laughs> so that they can escape yeah, it yeah. for a little while but then once the wild ends are over the wall um, it does start to feel like uh, the storylines are going to collide in a way that means we're going to have to lose somebody along the way. Um, what are your thoughts about the first little phase of, of the battle? There, anything about, I don't know, the, uh, the tactics that are employed or the characters that are about to come together? Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, well, there's a lot of moving parts in this. It's kind of... Um... I, I fully agree with you in that you, you don't really want either of them to come to harm, even though you know they will, because obviously there's going to be these casualties and it will mean that some of those characters you do associate with are, are inevitably going to perish. Um, I think this particular like first phase of the battle, it's, it's hard to write notes on because there is just so much action going on. There's, you know, the initial rush, there's... Um, you know, Sir Alistair taking charge and then there's, um, as you say, Slam and Pip sort of having to find shelter and it just, there's so much packed into this sort of 10, 15 minute period. Yeah. But that's also kind of a downside because it doesn't give it much room to breathe. Um, You feel like there's about three people who were put in charge at the wall in the space of about 10-15 minutes. Yeah, the chain of command does make me laugh where it's like, Sir Alistair gives it to Janos Lint, Janos Lint gives it to John, John gives it to Ed, <laughs> and then Ed yeah, drops the like, side. Yeah, it's like a hot potato, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we could talk about Janos Lint for a second, actually. Um, yeah, sure. I take it you were sort of expecting this to happen, like, He's, he ends up being useless, because all he's really been at Castle Black is just someone who stands next to Sir Alistair sort of giggling you know it is, it is it's the Stuart lee thing about richard hammond yes 100 um, percent agree yeah, um trapped between two forms of cowardice um 
And in this particular form of cowardice is that he genuinely didn't believe for a very long time. Is that the um, He clearly doesn't believe the giants and mammoths are real and then he sees them and he's still... They're not real. Stories for the children. Um, and then oh, they've managed to concoct sake. that great scheme where it's like, uh, Sir Janos, Sir Alice and you below. Oh, does he now? Oh, yes. I think I better answer that call. <laughs> and then he ends up in the pantry where um, Egret and Sam are. I mean, you, you do get the sense from him that, give, you know, if he had a choice, he would not be there. No. The only reason he is there is because... Uh, well, Tyrion wanted him out, and now he's, you know, about to face a death sentence. So I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, why the fuck am I still here? Why am I dealing with this? <laughs> yeah, I his, never opted uh, into this. His important friends aren't helping him now, are they? His, no, his no. His connections they've... in the capital, but he promised Tyrion that he had. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, though, this is a big moment for John because this is where I think that the decision to go to Craster's Keep is justified because as much as it was a contrived plot point with some needless violence in the middle um, that felt like the show was enjoying it a little bit too much, I think that where we've arrived at now is probably worth it because that was the first time John ever really was given the chance to assume the role of Ranger that he's always wanted. Yeah, true. Um, he's always wanted to be, you know, a, a leader or, you know, something like that. And I think that this is a chance for him to take it and he takes it well. And then, well, he knows how to delegate. He goes down below later on um, when he descends in in lift. But I do, I think this is a really big moment for him. And I think it's as much as the chain of command is a bit of a hurry and a bit of a rush. Uh, I just think that the decision to have, you know, it's clear, you know, like you were saying last week where um, the the lads were all kind of rallying around Sam and saying like, oh, don't worry, she'll be all right. And, you know, Sam, Ed, Gren, Pip, John, they've, they've kind of, you know, the five of them have become a, a good, you know, a good solid core, a, a group of characters that we really enjoy spending time with. And there's clearly some kind yeah. of, but there's a bond there now that's believable. And it's good that they kind of come up with this scheme to kind of send Janos Lint down below and put John in charge because they all like John and they all trust John. And I think it's a of an episode with not many. I think it's a good solid gesture towards uh, a stronger character moment. And I think that if there's one person maybe who starts this episode as one person and leaves it as another, it's probably John. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think John is probably the only one because um, all the other characters aren't really in it enough, I don't think, to develop. I think maybe Sir Alistair, but he's not... Sir Alistair I would, isn't... I would say Sam, actually. What? Maybe there's more than we thought, then. Uh, that's that's three that we've listed. But what do you think has changed about Sam? I think he's realised it, as I said before, he can be assertive. Um, we'll obviously get to it, because I think he's more in the, the second half of the battle, where he sort of becomes a different person and he realizes that yeah he can he can tell people what to do and eventually he sort of leads to the decision to well give give Ollie a weapon and have Egret killed which I'm sure John might not agree but I suppose he did save John's life indirectly hmm yeah maybe we're maybe we're uh Maybe we're going to end up liking this episode a bit more and maybe we're going to think that it is more character-focused than we thought at the start because now we're talking about it. I can list John and Sam 
now mm. that you've mentioned it and argued your case very well, is people who change. And even though I don't think Sir Alistair has changed over the course of the episode, there is at least another side to him that we always knew was there and has had a chance to a chance to come out. But um, I do think I'm, that this yeah, episode is, I, is a big moment for John. Sorry, I just wanted to say on that as well, while we're on Alistair and John, he does eventually concede to John that they should have blocked the tunnel while they had the chance. Yes, um, that's during his um, clever little twat with a mouth uh, speech that he so yeah, so yeah. brilliantly, uh, that Owen Teal uh, so brilliantly, so brilliantly plays. After releasing Ghost and killing Athen, Sam ascends to the top of the wall where he informs John that the castle is overrun with wildlings and John leaves Ed in charge of the wall and returns below to help in the effort against the wildlings. And once there, he fights impressively and wins a one-on-one duel with another Then who had invaded the castle. And during the fight, he encounters Egret, as we all kind of expected him to. Uh, mm-hmm. She cannot bring herself to shoot John with the arrow after all. And instead, while she's, well, she basically, she's, you know, she's very tense. She's pulled the bow back and she's just waiting. And she is shot from behind by Ollie. And despite his best efforts to keep her talking and keep her going, John is unable to stop Egret from drifting to death. Uh, meanwhile, Tormund is captured and Ed drops a giant scythe on the wildlings attempting to climb the wall from the other side of the castle. And for one night at least, the battle is over. And with the battle over, John takes it upon himself to venture out beyond the wall and kill Mansraider himself in the hopes of scattering his army to prevent a second wave. Um, mm. I think this is when the more obviously emotional stuff comes through. So first of all, uh, we I want to talk about I don't know if um, it's not really an emotional thing, but it does it does make me feel quite emotional actually about the uh, the size that the show is achieving now. Because um, obviously in the first half of the episode, you get that giant shooting a giant arrow through mm. that guy, and then he you know he plonks down in the middle of the battle. But there's yeah. another moment where I feel like the show gets bigger, which is that single take that goes around all of Castle Black, where it feels like they're really pushing themselves technically, and they're really trying to pull off something where they're like, "Look at what we can do with what we've got now." Like, yeah, this yeah. is what television is capable of. And like, th- there are elements of this episode that I really enjoy. Like, there are parts of Castle Black I've never seen before. Where mm-hmm. like there's the pantry that Sam leaves Gilly and eventually uh, Jana Slint gets in there, um, but this shot of the whole castle, all four sides of the courtyard, is the first time I think we've ever seen the full, fully built Castle Black set, all angles, all sides, all the runways and catwalks being used at once, thousands yeah, of is, yeah. swords clanging in the middle of it and loads of extras and loads of amazing choreography and brilliant camera direction. 
Um, it's a really, really great. I think I think it is the episode for me. It's not the episode's defining moment, but I think it's on a te- from a technical standpoint, it is a real standout. That it's it, it is a moment where upon rewatch, I'm like, ah, the show's just got bigger there. Like the, it's like with Blackwater, where there's the explosion on the water, and you're like, mm-hmm. ah. That's a moment, isn't it, where the show gets a little bit bigger, and then with this one, it's like, ah, the show's gotten just that little bit more technically impressive, haven't it? Ah, you're, you're clever, you, because you're not even using computers for this one. You're just using the camera and all the people you've got at your disposal. I think that's um, yeah, it's that, just that like, is an amazing um, one. Like cinema verite style. It's really well done. Explain what you mean about that. As in that long tracking shot with no no breaks, and it's like, how do you do that? <laughs> and that, I'm sure there's a way they splice it together. What was that recent film that did that? Oh, 1917. That's the one. 1917. Yeah. yeah. It's a really unusual effect when it's done for the whole movie because I saw 1917 and I, I thought it was okay. I like I generally enjoyed it. Um, mm. and not to get into that film's you know discussion of the film's quality, so to speak. No, no. Um, but the effect of the single take of the whole movie. After about half an hour, I was kind of sitting in my seat having some kind of mild anxiety attack about it because I was like, oh my God, a shot. Yeah. Are they ever going to cut? Are they ever going to cut? Please cut. And they never cut. And it's it's very, and it, like, it, I get that, you know, that there's a great bookend where, like, the, you know, that there's a character who starts the movie sleeping under a tree and then finishes the movie mm. sat under a tree and, like, you know, he's made it through a battlefield to get from one tree to another. That all makes sense. But, um, yeah, there are moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I was, I was look, I found myself consciously distracted. I was distracted from the story, and I was consciously looking for the cuts because I was desperate for a cut. And it, it really does feel like a sentence that never ends, and there's no punctuation. And yeah, it's very, yeah. very, you know. Funnily enough, it's a bit of a coincidence there. Dean Charles Chapman, who plays Tommen in Game of mm. Thrones, is actually in 1917. Um, oh, awesome! And he, you know, he has a, he has a prominent role in that movie as well. But yeah, that's, that's an amazing moment. And they do cut, they don't leave it for too long. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think that um, there are two moments in this where, as we find out, it results in two deaths of um, Gren and Pip, where we'll talk about Gren's first. Um, that's a great mm. moment. I think that's a really good oh, yeah. moment of high tension. Unfortunately, when we were watching it, the Blu-ray <laughs> kind of fucked up and you missed it a little bit. But then on your second watch, yep. you watched it. And I love the... The, the editing of that scene where they're repeating the Night's Watch vows and you have the giant running towards them and then it, it ends with the, and all the nights to come. Rah! And that, that that's a really good moment, but I don't know if it caught you in the same way. Yeah, no, it does. Because you just, you have just this descending, well, literally a giant just running at you and that's all they can do in that moment. They know, they know that's it. It's like, what yeah. else can you do but just, you know, recite it and hope that, I don't know, there's an afterlife and you can be redeemed there because you were you were true to your vows. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it, actually, that maybe, you know, not only is it a defiant kind of repeating of the vows um, to, you know, like, we're going to defend this castle, but it's more like, well, you know, at least I was true to these vows until the end. Of course, and... you never gave up. That's it until the very last moment. It's it's desperation, but you know you were you were true all the way. They held the gate, absolutely. They held the gate, and the other one is Pip, where Sam 
I think Sam is the real kind of star of this scene, as sad as it is mm. for Pip to be taken like this, really grisly and horrible. Um, yeah. Sam playing like a father to Pip, where he's like, oh, Maester Raymond's coming, don't worry, he'll make it all right. Oh, I know. Um, no. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, you, you, that's got a bit of a reaction out of you, so, yeah, talk about it. Yeah, I think I kind of brushed this off the first time I saw it, actually, um, you know, because he's saying it's got to be okay. It's like, Sam, mate, he has a, a an arrow through his neck. He's not <laughs> going to be okay. You have to... But, but that that's just it. He realises that he's got a friend in Pip, and... He doesn't know what he can do, but he can at least try and make those last moments comfortable. And, you know, I guess Maester Raymond is like a comforting presence for them both. Um, I'm guessing they're both familiar with him. And he seems like someone you would want to be there in your final moments. So, you know, maybe trying to put that thought in, in Pip's head so that he's at peace at least when he dies. He's not panicking about, you know, what what's going to happen to his friends. It's just kind of lets him drift away in his arms but I think I kind of initially saw that scene as Sam being naive but when I watched it again it was more like Sam as I say just trying to comfort him yeah no I absolutely agree um and I think that one something that's also really revealing and quite sad is that in that moment none of them no one ever calls out for their parents in this episode Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. it's like they're so far from home and so Mm. divorced from whatever life they used to have that, like, the only dad that they actually have is Maester Eamon, who just kind of Mm. wanders the castle. And he's, you know, alone himself and has often lamented the fact that he had to give up everything and he had to give up his family to come to the wall. Um, So, yeah, no, it is. It's a very, really, really sad uh really really sad moment and i guess you know the other death that we can get to now um it is a death that has made me cry in the past but it doesn't really make me cry anymore uh mm. which is poor old egret um i think you know when that when book readers watched season four episode three and ollie was introduced because yeah. the way that they were like, they marked him out as like, that kid's going to kill Egret. That kid is going to kill Egret. And like, it's when yeah. Sam is like bellowing at Ollie, like, pick up a weapon, Ollie, fight them. It's like, every, I think everyone who read the books was like, ah, this is how they're going to do Egret's death in the books. Because obviously, like, mm-hmm. in the show, because in the books, it's slightly different where John doesn't know whose arrow is in Egret. He just kind of finds her dying. And they have the same kind of conversation and she passes away. But the, the person whose arrow it belongs to, there's, there's, no, there's no clear indication of who. And so, yeah. like, you know, I think the way that they've done this is that they've inserted a character and given him a bit of a backstory. It's kind of like a villain origin story where, like, well, Egret attacked my town. So this is like, this is a revenge attack. And you're not going to forget mm. Egret, uh, bright ginger hair amongst the wildlings, um kissed by fire as Tormund would say um and so yeah it makes sense but you weren't a fan of this scene and you're still not are you no it's it's, I'm sorry it's not won me over I think it's kind of a two-pronged problem I think it's a bit too convenient to have Ollie actually you know uh, you know actually showing that I think you could maybe reveal that later on but it's it's very yeah, convenient to actually just display it as is literally, you know, the revenge killing, which you say. 
Yeah. And also, uh, the actual conversation they have is not not great. I, I don't mind the stuff about the cave, but I think the whole dying conversation thing is a bit contrived. You know nothing, John's no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't need that. Yeah, it's very. I did not uh, need that. I mean, to be honest, I don't. This is something I guess, like you know, because of the standards that Game of Thrones set for itself. Having a moment mm. like this, it does feel like it's breaking its own rules a little bit. If you know what I yeah. mean. Whereas, like, if yeah. this was in, so, I mean, there are thousands of moments like this in Lord of the Rings, where like the Lord of the Rings trilogies, which is the, those are they're fucking awesome movies, but like there are moments mm. where like characters die and they'll be like, please. And they they can't quite get the last word out, and like it's like this big emotional scene where the music rises and all that. Um, I know. You, yeah. I mean, you you could have had John be like Mendoza, <laughs> kind of very sort of Hollywood interpretation of death. And I think even at the time, I I might have mentioned on the the bonus app. I'm not sure, but I think it's one of the the rare times that I've been I've watched a Game of Thrones scene and sort of rewritten it in my head to be more impactful it's like yeah even though this is a show from nearly a decade ago that i have no power over and i've not seen until just this week but yeah i think i'm I'm just picturing it as i don't know the battle's over and john kind of finds egret with an arrow in her and she's already gone but they share that moment with just john sort of realizing i might have won the battle but at what cost yeah um, yeah. that's kind of I think that's kind of what happens in the books because it's like it's a discovery after the fact if you know what I mean yeah, yeah. whereas in this I guess you know they've kind of made it to be at least more impactful impactful for television where they've kind of simplified it a little bit where John sees it happen and he's mm. there and yeah when she's talking about staying in that cave it does make me feel a bit emotional but it doesn't quite have the impact on me that it used to I think the first time I saw it it was like oh like, I really liked Egret and I didn't want her to go. Um, but mm-hmm. now I know that the story survives without her in it. It's, you know, it makes it feel less uh, less impactful. And I guess, you know, the more you see it, the more desensitized you become to it. But maybe that didn't help when, like, she was she's in shot and it's like she's having this conversation like, we should have stayed in that cave. You know, nothing, Jon Snow. And there's, like, this arrow stick, like jutting out of her, <laughs> like, sticking up at yeah. the screen. Um, makes it seem a little silly, but um, and I think that's also coupled with this like massive Deus Ex Machina where it's like drop the scythe, drop the scythe. <laughs> it's like what what <laughs> scythe? Like what? Where's this come from? Um, but I guess you yeah. know they have to do something to kind of because this episode has such a weird ending point where oh it does it yeah. doesn't really come to an emotional conclusion because it's like the battle as far as the Night's Watch are concerned the battle is not over. There's th- this is just the well, first wave. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like the battle's over, but the war is just starting. Yeah, and so it finishes in this odd place where it's kind of neither a cliffhanger nor a cadence. It's kind of... Mm. So I think that they drop the scythe and lower the tension with Egret's death. Like with the, There's a very deliberate slow-mo shot, which Game of Thrones does not go for very often. I'm trying to think of moments they've done so far that are genuine, like, slow motion, and I'm struggling to think of... Like, I'm struggling to bring examples to mind that are really prominent. Um, like, maybe oh, Arya... Sure there is some. Arya being taken away from the scene of Ned's death. 
in the. I, I was the, actually thinking. Um, did they do it when Arya was taken away from um, outside the Red Wedding, or am I just imagining that? Because the hound hits her over the head, and then there's the yeah. thing afterwards where she wakes up and she sees Rob's head. The other one I'm thinking of is Stannis being taken away from the Battle of Blackwater, and he says, stand and fight. But, you know, it's yeah. not a big thing yeah. that they do, whereas this feels like they've slowed it down to live in the moment that little bit longer. And I think it's a great shot as well, the camera backing away from Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie on the floor. Um, mm. while the the fight kind of rages on around them. Um, but yeah, I think that because she's gone now, we can kind of have a little chat about her. Um, Egret, we can kind of do an in-memoriam, I guess. Um, this is obviously where Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie met each other, and Kit Harrington says, you know, it's great that if we have any kids in the future, um, that they'll be able to see where their mum and dad met. Maybe don't show them the scene from Kiss by Fire, but, you know, you yeah, can skip no. over that bit, I guess. Um, <laughs> but Egret was one of your favourite characters in season two. Um, she yeah. brought quite a lot to the table in season three. And even though she's been more absent in season four, she's a great presence whenever she's around. Um, but what are your overall thoughts about Egret? Yeah, I really liked Egret's presence. And although I kind of... We had the discussion, was it end of season three when I thought that was the end of Egret's arc and that we wouldn't necessarily see her again. Yeah. I think, yeah, this is as good, as good a place to end it as any because otherwise it is just going to be this... It's something that overhangs John's arc as it is, even if she's not there. And yeah. you wonder if it'll be... It might still be the the point that he holds on to in getting revenge on Man's Raider. So... So yeah, I'm going to miss Egret, but it felt like the natural time to do it. Yeah, I think so, because I think in terms of her development as a character, it did kind of end in season three. And mm. the scenes that we've had with her so far this season, I think they're mostly show inclusions anyway, because I think, you know, they're clearly building up to her dying. And so they're yeah. thinking, well, we need to put scenes with her in because then we need to remind viewers of her and what she's like before we take her away. And so, yeah, that makes total sense. But yeah, she's a great character. She is an electric presence in season two, completely transforms that storyline beyond the wall in season two. John's with her. Uh, She's part of a really good episode, uh, because that's the same episode where Theon beheads Sir Roderick, and there's the riot in King's Landing and stuff. So, yeah, an amazing episode. And uh, yeah, sad to see her go. But, you know, I know the story survives without her. And so as much as I miss her, um, yeah, like you say, this is the right point to do it. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any further notes about the the battle itself or that John's decision to go out beyond the wall, maybe. I, 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 I don't know. But if not, then we can move on to our line of the episode. Um, I don't think I do. I don't know if you have anything. I think the only thing I did note was that at the end, this, another thing I don't think we've seen in the show, the screen fades up to white. Yes, there's a whiteout at the end of the episode rather than a yeah. cut to black, which is very jarring because it fades up to white and then there's a sudden snap to black in the credits and it's like, oh, and it feels yeah. like the end of an episode of uh, end of an episode of Arrested Development because they always white out uh, after the uh, oh, next yeah, time yeah, on. Yeah. What you trying to say to me? <laughs> <laughs> Always in the soundtrack for that bit. But um, 
Yeah, no, it's um, yeah. I think it's. It, I, I do think it's a great episode that verges on fantastic, but it just has weak points, and I think it has such an easy comparison with Blackwater that you can see where this one mm. maybe falls slightly short of that high mark. So yeah. this still achieves great things, and I think that it's a great halfway point for the show tonally, uh, technically, in terms of its storytelling and all that. It brings mm. to a semi, you know, a big emotional conclusion, but a semi conclusion in terms of plot, the coming conflict that has come from the first scene of the first episode with the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. Because as much as that first episode, uh, first scene in the first episode is about, uh, you know, a White Walker. They're mm. on the hunt for wildlings when they get attacked by the White Walker. And yeah, so it, it's been coming since the prologue. And I think, yeah, it deserves a big showpiece episode. And I think that, you know, 95% of the time, I think it really it really delivers. Um, so I want your line of the episode, Lizzie. What was your line of the episode? Yeah, no competition for this one. Line of the episode is from Maester Eamon, who says, We could spend all night trading tales of lost loves. Nothing makes the past a sweeter place to visit than the prospect of imminent death. Always with the wisdom, isn't he, Maester Raymond? I guess that's what oh, he's yes. there for. <laughs> God love him. Who's your loser this week? Um, again, not a difficult one. Janice Slint. <laughs> the big oh, fucking dear. coward. <laughs> uh, and who's your who's your winner? Slightly more difficult, because I actually had, well, I had two names in the hat, and now has come the time, I thought I'd, I've had a, all week to decide, and I'm still, like, right down to the wire on the decision. There's one character who surprised me more, but one character who impressed me more, and I think, given how I've discussed this episode, I'm actually going to have to go with Sam. Cool, alright then. Yeah, it was it was very nearly Sir Alistair Thorne. So yeah, you're a a very very close second. But. Ooh, not John. I was expecting John to be your because he's positioned at kind of like the centre of this. I was wondering if it was going to be him. Well, he's a third place, but yeah, I think Sir Alistair is the one who surprised me the most. But yeah, as we've talked about this episode, I realised I have a lot of notes about Sam, and yeah. yeah, he's he's my MVP for this week. All right then. Next week, we have the season four finale, season four, episode 10, entitled The Children. We will be back to discuss that one in a few days' time. In the meantime, if you want to go and listen to our bonus episode for this episode, where we just did an instant reaction after we watched it, feel free. Mm -hmm. I've not done much promoting of it. It's just like a a paper episode, like you would have a paper candidate in an election. Uh, We do have our interview with Eric Anthony Nolan, which is live. That went live a few weeks ago. We have an interview in a couple of weeks with Curtis Napier. That'll be out after the season finale. They were both extras on the show, so they've got loads of juicy backstage stuff if you want to go and listen to that. Um, I cannot wait for next week. Uh, We're watching it in person again. So that's awesome. Um, Yeah, awesome. All right, then. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. We'll see you very soon. See ya.